I am Corey Shockey, the Deputy Director General of the International Institute for Strategic Studies, and this is Sound Strategic, our podcast to showcase the outsized talents of the research team here at the Institute. And it's my great pleasure today to have Naveen Sheppers with us. She is a research associate in the uh, Nonproliferation and Arms Control Program. She's the anchor of that program here in London because, of course, as our listeners know, we have offices in London, Bahrain, Washington, Singapore, and soon Berlin, and we are a distributed and consciously international organization. Uh, Naveen's expertise is on Iran, uh, all aspects of the nuclear agreement. She wrote her a master's thesis on Chinese and European involvement in the Iranian uh, joint JCPOA. I always get the name, I always get the acronym garbled, but she did her graduate work at Sciences Po and at Fudan University in Shanghai, and I am super humbled to report the number of languages she speaks. I imagine being Belgian that Three languages is an outsized and extraordinary, but you speak five, so even by Belgian standards, that's outstanding. Naveen, thank you so much for coming on Sound Strategic. Thank you, Corey, for having me. So as our listeners know, we have a standard set of questions that we go through each time to give consistency and clarity to the program. And the first one that we always ask people is, what about your work is hot in the news right now, which is kind of an almost ironic question given the work that you do, Naveen. Yes, I must say there are a lot of different topics that are currently in the news ranging from North Korea, the Iran nuclear agreement, the future of arms control, whether (laughs) multilateral or bilateral, but um, I've actually been working a lot on uh, civil nuclear energy exports, so the subject I've been following a lot is uh, Saudi Arabia's uh, civil nuclear energy program and a lot of the media attention it's been getting in the in the last few weeks. So this is a subject I don't know nearly enough about. So give me remedial lessons. Uh, who in the region has nuclear power? Who built the nuclear power plants people in the region have? Should we be nervous about what's going on with the Saudis? Uh, and what does it all mean for proliferation? So at the moment, Iran is the only country with a uh, nuclear energy program. Uh, its reactor operating, currently operating reactor was built by Russia. Uh, and many other countries have expressed uh, intentions of building uh, a nuclear energy program, um, Saudi Arabia, but also Jordan. Uh, but in the Wasn't case, there a U.S. conversation with the UAE some years ago, too? Of course, the UAE as well has uh, a nuclear program uh, that is starting uh, very soon. It's not uh, currently in operation, but it's being built uh, by the South Koreans. Hmm. And we are currently, I think, waiting for it to uh, become operational, I think, later this year. There's been a few delays, but um, yeah. In the case of Saudi Arabia, though, I think in... Uh, it, 
it has had plans to construct uh, nuclear reactors for quite some time. I think starting already at the, in the beginning of 2010, has had various different negotiations in place with uh, the Chinese, the Russians, the French, the South Koreans, and of course with the United States. And the particularity of negotiating with the United States is in order for the US to export uh, nuclear technology, you need to have a what's called a one, two, three agreement in place. And when the United States negotiated one with um, the United Arab Emirates, it managed to get a lot of, um, let's say, very specific restrictions in place for what are the most dangerous aspects of a nuclear energy program, which are uh, uranium enrichment and plutonium reprocessing. Um, but when it's been negotiating with Saudi Arabia, it's uh, been very clear that Saudi Arabia is not interested in having any additional restriction placed on these technologies, which has made the US, but also the rest of the international community a bit worried. And in the last few weeks, we've heard reports coming from uh, Congress uh, that the Trump administration has perhaps tried to bypass uh, the checks and balances that are in place to assure that there are very strong proliferation standards in any, say, agreement between the United States and a, a third country. So it's always a relevant question uh, with regards to the government of my sweet provincial <laughs> country, but it's especially sharp these days. Uh, so is what is Congress's role versus the executive in these agreements? Can the president by executive order make this deal with the Saudis or does Congress have to either either approve it with treaty provisions or approve the uh, authorization and appropriation of money for it? So uh, the State Department, with support from the Department of Energy, uh, is the negotiating party on behalf of the, of the United States for a one-two-three agreement. And once it is negotiated, it has to go through Congress. And so Congress has a 90-day, I believe, time uh, window in order to uh, either reject it or just let it pass. If they do reject it, it then goes through another process where um, the president, I believe, does have some executive power there to overturn any rejection based on national security grounds. But uh, at the moment, most uh, one, two, three agreements have passed through Congress in this way. But there, are, there is a push at the moment to uh, not just uh, have a one, two, three agreement go through Congress, but actually uh, require the approval, the formal approval of Congress. So there, there is a lot of push at the moment, especially given let's say, uh, recent events in Saudi Arabia um, that have had the Congress quite worried about the sale of nuclear technology. So by recent events, do you mean the murder of Jamal Khashoggi in Turkey by the government of Saudi Arabia? Do you mean the execution of 37 Saudis uh, by the government as terrorists? Uh, and including the post-execution crucifixion of at least one of them? Do you mean the war in Yemen? Uh, is that the entirety of the charge sheet? Or are there specific concerns about Saudi Arabia and nuclear energy that are weighing on congressional approval? I think the war in Yemen has 
had an effect, but I must say it was with the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi that I think there has been a lot more uh, scrutiny on, um, let's say, the the possible agreement or negotiation of such an agreement with Saudi Arabia. Then again, um, last year there had been, let's say, in an interview with CBS, when uh, the Prince Mohammed bin Salman was asked uh, whether uh, Saudi Arabia would uh, ever uh, produce nuclear weapons, he said, uh, if Iran goes in that direction, so will Saudi Arabia. So this has been sort of a reminder that there is a risk and the fact that they are refusing to um, restrict uh, in an agreement with the United States their rights to enrich and reprocess it, which are, I must uh, insist, are the, the two dangerous technologies when it comes to, to nuclear power. Um, I'd say these two facts have gotten people quite worried, yes. And given the amount of work you have done on the Iranian nuclear agreement, uh, how strong is the connection between the administration's rejection of the Iran agreement and potential concerns about Iran's nuclear program, nuclear weapons program, stoking a cascade of proliferation in the region? Because that was one of the initial arguments that many people, including me, who had misgivings about the agreement supported it because we were so much more worried about the potential for the cascade if Iran should continue to make progress across the nuclear threshold. Do you see any connection between what's going on with the Saudis and the withdrawal from the Iranian nuclear agreement, or are they separate issues? There are connections, of course, but I see the Trump administration's current um, position on the Iran nuclear agreement to be extremely counterproductive in the sense uh, like should the Iran nuclear agreement fail there are no more checks and balances to the extent that they are currently in place through uh, additional inspections that the International Atomic Energy Agency can do Uh, there are much more limited let's say um, verification possibilities on Iran's uh, nuclear program which has been certified many numerous times uh, since the nuclear deal was implemented that compliance compliance. yeah one of I'm sorry go ahead one of the reasons I supported the JCPOA with misgivings but supported it Mm -hmm. was the inspection provisions were so much better than we were going to get without the agreement Mm -hmm. and if you really believe the United States was going to preventatively attack the Iranian nuclear weapons program at some point in time. Those inspections would be invaluable intelligence gathering opportunities that are not available to us now that we have withdrawn from the agreement. Given the work that you did on China and the European Union with the JCPOA, how do you anticipate the um, the Trump administration's announcement that they will give no further waivers for Iranian oil to reach the market. What do you think the Europeans and Chinese, how will they likely react to that? I think the Europeans will continue to support the the nuclear agreement and they will continue to, um, let's say, promote the instruments they've put in place to try and ensure uh, trade 
with Iran can continue. For China, it would be actually quite interesting to see how they will uh, react given the, the current uh, trade, uh, let's say, issues as well they're facing with the United States. We have seen them <clears throat> reduce their uh, oil imports from Iran uh, following uh, last year's, uh, let's say, um, the U.S.'s withdrawal of the the Iran nuclear agreement and the subsequent re-implementation of sanctions, but uh, how quickly they will be able to uh, completely stop uh, and whether they intend to, whether they will, would be willing to face sanctions, I think will be quite an interesting uh, Yeah, I find story myself a little bit more sympathetic to the Trump administration on uh, no further waivers of... Uh, for Iranian oil. I find myself a little more sympathetic than most people because the point of the waivers from the time the JCPOA was signed were, were in order to provide transition time away from Iranian oil to other purchases. And, and it has been, how many years has it been since the uh, agreement went into force because the Clinton administration gave the first round of profligate waivers to India, Japan, China, everybody else, right? When did that happen? Are you saying when did the Iran nuclear agreement come into force? Or yeah. So in January 2016. Okay, January 2016. Uh, okay, so it's not as much time to, mm -hmm. to make a major transition in your economy like finding alternative sources of oil imports. Mm. How, okay, that's interesting. How did you become expert on this work, my friend? What got you interested in it? Um, so I initially uh, did my undergrad degree in Asian studies with the intention of possibly becoming an interpreter at some point. Is that right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> ah, so this explains the wild outsized proficiency <laughs> with languages. Yes, but the more I learned about um, different Asian countries, history, culture, and politics, the, the more I became interested, I think, on in the, the foreign policy aspect of it. And I think it's very hard to study Asia without studying its relationship with nuclear weapons and with nuclear energy, particularly looking at Japan and China, but also, of course, uh, India and Pakistan. And so I think it caught my interest as a, as a subject. And I've since uh, been learning how large this field is of non-proliferation and <laughs> nuclear policy and how much there is to learn, how many different niches there are. And it's, it's been a, a learning experience every day and a fantastic one at that. Now, you've recently participated in the Carnegie Endowments um, non-proliferation workshop. Talk a little bit about what you learned in that experience. I think the um, Carnegie Conference um, has been a very interesting experience because they are actively trying to promote uh, young voices in the field and young researchers. They have, say, a separate um, workshop. They encourage mentorship, and it's. I think in this particular field, there might have been quite a gap uh, between, uh, let's say, researchers who are now. In their 40s, 50s. Oh and my God, that's so true. Now in their 20s, 30s, there's a bit of a gap there, and it's been it's been very interesting to see these interactions between uh, people from, let's say, my generation who are entering, who have entered this field, let's say, in the last five years or so, and people who have been uh, 
working through on these issues for, for 50, 60 years, I've followed the implementation and the negotiation of all these various treaties which today are, are fraying or in, in disarray. It's been, it was a very interesting um, uh, conference and I think uh, it keeps, it's, it, it was important in, let's say, bringing light to a let's say, constant uh, stream of, of issues that have been um, in the limelight, especially in the last uh, few years since Trump took office, unfortunately. You're right that there is an enormous, almost a generation's mm. gap in expertise because the most salient questions of international security in the 1950s and 60s um, were the nuclear issues. How much do nuclear weapons change warfare? What what are the careful intricacies of the operations of nuclear deterrence? Or are there no careful intricacies? Is it a blunt, uh, a, a blunt tool for managing great power competition? And with the end of the Cold War, the, I think the field, just as the field of Russian studies, or what used to be Soviet studies, dried up a little, talented young people went into different aspects of security. And and now it's back in fashion because we have to start worrying about it again. Um, so what's your favorite book in your field, Naveen? This might be a, an unconventional an un- unconventional answer given, let's say, the, the wealth of literature that is that exists. But uh, I'd say one of my favorite books is actually called Uranium, and it's written by a journalist called Tom Zollner. It sort of traces the, the history and use of uranium, so you, you learn a lot about uh, the economics, the mining industry, how, be, how it was central to, um, of course, uh, nuclear weapons production, but also nuclear energy, and yeah, thought it was quite an interesting, let's say, way to tie a lot of these issues together. Oh, that's and fascinating. I've never read it. Because it's written by a journalist as well, the, the style is, is quite compelling. You know, it's <laughs> Okay, now I am banging my shoe on the table like Khrushchev at the United Nations in objection to that. While it is true that many of the best analysts here at the IISS do come out of journalism, it is also not necessarily true that we academics are bad writers and our prose is inaccessible. (laughs) I reject that flat out, um, both personally and as the research director of this fine August institution. Um, What's the conventional wisdom in your field that you think is wrong? I think there are, let's say, two opposing conventional wisdoms that keep being referred to as a conventional wisdom, although they contradict each other. And one is that uh, nuclear power reactors do not pose any proliferation risks. And the other is, of course, that nuclear power programs do increase the risks of nuclear weapons proliferation. These two, let's say, <laughs> competing theories are often being cited as a, a conventional wisdom. So one or the other argument. is yeah. the starting point, and you're saying they're both wrong? I'm saying they're Or they both. can't both be true? I'm saying the, there's a, let's say, a, a right balance between the two. Um, I think this ties back a little bit to um, what I was talking about in regards to Saudi Arabia. I think saying... Um, 
nuclear reactors as such uh, do not pose a proliferation risk, okay, but the, there are various technologies associated with uh, civil nuclear energy as well, which are dual use and are particularly uranium enrichment and uh, plutonium reprocessing. So all, this all has to do with the fuel itself. And so the production of the fuel and then once the fuel is used, how how it how it is being used once it's used in a sense. And so I think the, the risks are tied there. But then saying that uh, nuclear energy programs are will automatically lead to proliferation is wrong as well because there are very tight checks and balances that have improved over the decades as new situations arose. And so the Can you give us an example of one of those? What's one that you think's a great innovation? You were surprised it took as long as it did. An innovation? Um, I think there are both legal and technical innovations in a sense. I think uh, reactors at the very beginning did pose certain proliferation risk, whereas the ones that are used today, either for research or for power production, uh, use very, very low enriched uranium, uh, and they cannot as such as a reactor be used for, for the production of weapons. But then on the legal side, the International Atomic Energy Agency has constantly improved uh, its uh, safeguards agreements that it negotiates with countries. Uh, and I think it learned a lot from uh, Iraq and so has since, for instance, been promoting um, the signing of an additional protocol that would give it a bit more power to detect whether illegal activities are taking place, not necessarily at the facilities that are listed, but in other places as well. So there are constant uh, evolutions. And reactors today, people are trying to make them more proliferation resistant and uh, incorporate more passive safety features in them. And it's been a, an interesting evolution, I'd say, to respond That is to a magnificent um, series of innovations. And I love that you didn't take the question narrow and technically, oh. that you took it big and broad and included the legal innovations mm -hmm. that have been such an important part of the evolution of preventing nuclear proliferation. Mm -hmm. um, the, the additional protocol agreement of the IAEA Iran, excuse me, Iraq, Iran, I had it right the first time. Iran had agreed to sign the additional protocol as part of the JCPOA, so right? it's currently implementing it. Uh, so it has signed it but not ratified it, I believe. But as part of the JCPOA, it is implementing the, the additional protocol, let's say. So if Iran should cease compliance with the JCPOA, we would lose the additional protocol safeguards that are currently being practiced by Iran. Yes. Excellent. Uh, that's a bracing thought. <laughs> <laughs> what's, the, what's your favorite work you've ever done? Like um, if you could point people to one thing of yours that would give a flavor for the work you do, what would it be? So I've recently written a paper for the EU Non-Proliferation and Disarmament Consortium on... Russia civil nuclear energy exports. And so it's been a bit of a culmination of uh, a year's worth of research, and so it was it was quite an interesting experience putting it all down on paper. And it's been a, a case, uh, let's say, Russia as a civil nuclear 
a supplier, how it's um, come to dominate the market, how it's being perceived. And in that paper, I tried to, let's say, um, examine whether these exports have very clear geopolitical implications and whether the, let's say, the, the statement that uh, often US commentators say that uh, Russian exports might lead to weaker nuclear governance compliance, so weaker nuclear safety or security norms, whether that's actually true. And it's been a, quite a trendy subject, let's say, in the last few years, mostly to show that Russia, but also China, have been uh, gaining a lot of ground on the nuclear export market, and that most nuclear reactors in the next few years will probably be made with Russian or Chinese technology in the US, but also others like France are trailing behind. And so that argument is often used to say, oh, we, we, if we don't improve, if the US doesn't improve its, its nuclear exports, China and Russia will swoop in and take the market. And so bringing a little bit of nuance to these statements and to this analysis has been, has been yeah, the, the paper I wrote. That's great. What's the title of it? It's called um, Russia's uh, Nuclear Energy Export Status Implications and... <laughs> That's so far enough. Else. If we Google that much of it, <laughs> we can get it. Uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, how worried should we be about the Russian-Egyptian uh, nuclear deal that just got signed? Um, on a scale of... Of zero, 1 to 10, I would say probably 5. I know that's not a very okay. straightforward answer, but my worry is more about the fact that Egypt has made a point, like a political point, of not signing or implementing a lot of uh, nuclear security and safety um, conventions and treaties to sort of make a political point about it uh, to show that there is discrimination between nuclear weapon states, non-nuclear weapon states. Uh, and so my worry is more about the oh, safety and security implications there. They, for instance, don't have an additional protocol in place. They do, do not follow a lot of the, let's say, international conventions in place on, on these very, very important issues. So. Yeah. That's really interesting that the weight of your concern is on the Egyptian side, not on the Russian side on that. Last question, Naveen Shepherds. What is your favorite data visualization? This might sound a bit strange as well, but um, a time zone map. Okay. I'll preface this by saying I love maps, uh, maps of the world, maps of countries, of, of cities, and Maps are never apolitical. Um, yeah. Borders are very are unrecognized states, or they all show they're all shown on maps, and there's always one side taken or another. But I've recently uh, learned that time zones are also very political. <laughs> yes, and, they are. And the deciding where, what, what, in which time zone a country is or isn't is is a very political decision. North Korea last year finally joined South Korea's time zone, which I think was quite a positive sign in inter-Korean relations. But 2014, Crimea was on the, became part of the Russian time zone rather than the previously Ukrainian time zone, which is an hour behind 
and China, all of China, which spreads across, I think, four or five different time zones, is actually just one time zone. <laughs> um, so I, I, I never realized how political time was until I saw it on a map. Okay, <laughs> I love the way that you took a relatively simple data visualization and showed how political the concept behind this very, something we take for granted and don't pay enough attention to. What a fabulous point to end this conversation on, Naveen. I wanna thank you for teaching me and our listeners about the Saudi nuclear energy program that's in the news these days, about some of the concerns about the U.S. withdrawal from the JCPOA, the Iranian Nuclear Agreement, for giving us the book Uranium to go read, to think about how these issues all connect around that central hub. Uh, for showing us uh, how nuclear power how innovations in both the legal structures and instruments that we use to uh, safeguard against nuclear proliferation have advanced the cause of non-proliferation. And I'm just thrilled that you chose not a narrow technical interpretation of innovation, but one that's about concepts. And I think I see that as the thread through so much of what you have talked about today. I learned today what a fine conceptualizer you are, Naveen, and I didn't appreciate that nearly enough about you before we had this conversation. Um, I want to thank you so much for this conversation and for the superb work you do for the double I double S, my friend. Thank, thank you, you. Corey. Thank you so much for having me.